Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as your word is preached this morning, we ask that your spirit, he would be here active among us, revealing truth to us, convicting us of sin, encouraging us, and laying straight a path for us to walk. Lord, if you do not meet us here, we are wasting our time. So we ask in anticipation, knowing that we have gathered in your name and you have promised to be with us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, so, for, so for weeks now, we've been examining how the Christian faith um, leads us to live different kinds of lives. And this different kind of lives in different contexts really rubs, a, rubs against the fallen nature of this world. We've seen that the titles that are given to us as believers include being a chosen people, a holy nation, that we're the temple of God upon earth, and that we are a forgiven people. We are the people who have received the mercy of God through the cross of Christ. And the tension these new realities bring for us have been covered uh, again and again, whether it be with the state or within our, our family units or anything else like that. And Peter keeps returning to this basic Christian ethic, this heart of what does it mean to live as a Christian in this world, and that is, shockingly, to follow the example of Jesus. If you are to be a Christian, that is a little Christ, you are to follow the example of your Savior. And at the heart of that is not returning, reviling for reviling. You see, there's this moral standard that you and I are charged to keep, even and especially when we are wronged. And we do this because we don't ultimately fear other people. We don't ultimately care what other people think about us. We fear God. God is at the heart of everything that we are to do. And today, Peter is going to apply that for us directly to the concept of suffering. The suffering here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is not general suffering that you would experience from living in a broken world, but what he is aiming at here is when we are persecuted, when we are hated and retaliated against for living righteously and following Christ. And this happens, Peter says, if it be God's will. If it be God's will that you should be mistreated for doing what God has told you to do. Your suffering and the persecution of Christ's sheep is not outside of the will of God. It's not a defect in his plan. He is not left scrambling to try to figure out what to do. When that reality dawns on us, the question becomes, why? Why would God call us into these new realities 
and then say, oh yeah, also part of my plan is that you're going to suffer for receiving these new realities. It's here we need to take a step back and let the Bible speak as a whole. The story of Scripture can be summarized as this. A war between the seed, or the offspring of the woman, that is the seed of promise, the children of promise, and the seed or offspring of the serpent, that is the evil one, Satan. We see that in promise in Genesis chapter 3, when God curses the serpent, he tells the serpent that your offspring are going to be at war with the offspring of the woman forever. And he's not actually talking about snakes here. He's talking about something far more serious than any fear of snake you may or may not have. So therefore, it is no small thing when Jesus looks at his opponents in the Gospels and he calls them a brood of vipers and his offspring of snakes. You're an offspring of snakes. You're the offspring of the serpent, the evil one. Jesus makes it even more plain in John chapter 8. He looks at the uh, group of Jews who are opposing him and he tells them about the most insulting thing that you could tell a Jew that you're not a Jew. You're not the offspring of Abraham. You're the offspring, sons of the devil. You are of the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent has, since the beginning, been in conflict with the seed of the woman found in Christ, primarily. So whatever else you think about the specifics of the book of Revelation, and whatever you think about the when of the events of the book of Revelation, it cannot be denied that at the heart of that book is you're watching the fighting between two rival kingdoms. The kingdom of the serpent and the kingdom of Christ. And so the saints, if you're tracing this throughout the book of Revelation, the saints overcome the seed of the serpent by not loving their lives, by remaining faithfulness, and by the blood of the Lamb. He suffered and overcame, and so must we. You see, God's tactic is that one way, if not the primary way, he overthrows those who are following the evil one, is that we would suffer. And that we would suffer well. And in this way, we appear to be losing. Christ died. Like We're so familiar with the story that we... We don't get the tension here. Like Christ died, the disciples went and hid and locked themselves in a room because all of their hope was gone. Like They had just spent three years of their lives building all of their hope around this Jesus character, and there he's crucified and he's dead. And all their hope is gone. It looks like he lost. Three days later, he, he rises again. And that is a model we are called to follow. That through suffering and remaining faithful to the end, we too win. So contrary to what some very influential and, and good pastors would say, we don't just lose down here. By suffering, we overcome. By suffering, the gospel goes forward. So why would God allow us to be persecuted in this age? The simple answer is this, in order that we might retake the world on behalf of our Savior, that we might overcome, that we might be those who are advancing the kingdom of Christ. And so throughout world history, you see this persecution waxes and wanes throughout the church's spread. The faithful are persecuted, and as they are persecuted, they overcome nations. People are converted, and they conquer, and the persecution fades. And so today's passage gives us instruction on how to suffer persecution, 
How do you suffer opposition well? How do you do it as Christ has done it? And you see, this age is marked by that conflict. Everything right now is being subjected to the rule of Christ. And you and I are called to help with that. To go forward in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word, following our Savior. And so it's becoming more and more clear to us here in this present time that we live in what is best described as a time of war. The forces of evil and darkness are on the rise. They don't like you. They don't like me. You need to stop worrying about whether or not they're going to like you. They won't. And that is not a defect. And Peter gives us an instruction here as to how to suffer faithfully and advance, therefore, the kingdom. The first requirement for suffering well is to suffer for the good. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So Peter begins this section by explaining, hey, if you're going about your life and you're just living well, you're living righteously, you're probably not going to be bothered. They're probably going to leave you alone because you're not going about making a bunch of enemies. This goes back to what we talked about last week, the principle of sowing and reaping. If you're a kind person, if you're a forgiving person, if you're a person who doesn't wrong other people, well, in general, you'll probably be left alone. But note, no sooner does he say that, that he shifts gears and acknowledges, though, that you still might be persecuted. That even if you're living a righteous life, they still might come for you. And you might therefore suffer for the sake of righteousness. In this world that is in the throes of a cosmic battle between good and evil, you may be persecuted because you have aligned yourself with a certain side. And the other side opposes you, even and especially if you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. Why? Because evil hates the good. The conflict is set. There is no neutral ground here. You're either on the side of the serpent or the side of Christ. And therefore, conflict is unavoidable. So living righteously is therefore no guarantee of being free of suffering. And sometimes it even invites persecution. Nonetheless, we are called to live rightly. For there is no gain or no advancement or no blessing if you are suffering for being a jerk. There is no gain of the kingdom if you are suffering because you stole something from somebody. That's natural consequences. To suffer for the good, though, we need to know what the good actually is. Peter's not saying, you know, whatever you think is good in your own heart, go ahead and suffer for that. No. Live righteously, suffer for the good, and this means that you need to know what is actually good. And this is why I tell you this all the time. On every level, the Bible stands in direct opposition to the popular thinking of our day. Well, you just figure out what's good for you. No. There is a the good, the bad, the evil. And you need to align your life with the good. The living the good is not a call to follow your heart. It is not a call to do the certain right virtue signals demanded by us today by those uh, I would call the leftists. It is a call, rather, to live in accordance with the law of God. To love God and to love neighbor. To push back against the darkness 
and to use the light. We believe in truth, therefore we are called to live like we actually believe that. We believe that there is an absolute, absolute standard of right and wrong, therefore we are called to live like we believe there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. Thus we suffer for the good. Peter even goes a little bit further than this. We are to be zealous for the good. To be passionate about what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. So we, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there a godly zeal in your heart and in mine for the good? Like, are you so zealous for the good that somebody might actually persecute you? Why would we be zealous for the good? Because we're saying this good thing is worth my suffering. Like we suffer for things we deem worthwhile all the time. I'll give you some petty examples of, from my own life. Sometimes, not as much as I probably should, but sometimes I get up early and I go for a morning run. In high school, I used to make fun of people who ran because I, I hate running. I still hate running. I don't like it. I'm too big and gangly uh, for it. But I get up and I run. Why do I go through the pains and suffering of running? Because I think the results are worth it. In high school, my dad used to tell me all the time, he would say, Levi, back then I was six, seven, and a, and a buck 90 soaking wet. He would say, Dad, or my dad would say to me, Levi, you need to go lift some weights. You need to pump some iron. I hated lifting weights. I lift weights now and I still hate it. Why do I do it? Because I think it's worthwhile. I think that the health benefits I'm getting from it are worth it. How much more so is it worth suffering for that which is eternally good and righteous? Living rightly is not only the right thing to do, but it is worth it. Even and especially when you are opposed. And I fear this is one thing the American church has lost sight of. We are zealous for a lot of things, but are we truly zealous for that which is good? I mean, we're, we're zealous to protect our platforms and our institutions from being called mean and all other sorts of things, but we're not zealous for good. We're zealous to protect and advance ourselves. We're zealous to be viewed as winsome and likable, but are we zealous for the good? Often those who are zealous for the good get maligned by their fellow brothers and sisters. In Christ, we are zealous for lots of things, but often not for the things we should be. But here comes the promise. Peter says, though, if you suffer for the good, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So you can think back to last week, and we, talk, we spoke about blessing and how blessing and suffering are not contrary to one another. So here's our anti-prosperity gospel this morning. If you suffer for the sake of Christ, God will bless you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what that blessing is, but that promise is found again and again in the New Testament. These are the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ says, if you suffer for my sake, 
you will be blessed and you are indeed already blessed. The kingdom is yours. And therefore, he says, you should rejoice because your reward in heaven will be great. Now, rejoicing at being persecuted is not a natural response. But it is something the Spirit enables us to do. And Jesus notes that this is not a new tactic. This is how they treated His prophets. This is how they treated Him. And this is how they treat those who follow Him. So this is the battle at the heart of the universe between the children of God and the children of the evil one. And the tactics are not new. He attacks, he slanders, and he persecutes. But Christ says that what they mean for evil, God turns into a source of blessing for his people. The next thing for suffering persecution well, to overcome it, is to honor and defend Christ. Look at the second half of verse 14, and then verse 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we are commanded here not to fear those who would persecute us, but to resist them with gentleness and with respect. The respect here, I think the English translation makes you think the respect is for them, but the respect there I think is more likely towards Christ as the Lord. And there it has the idea of fearing Christ the Lord instead of fearing man. And so you are called to honor Christ as the Lord. Throughout this section, Peter is making allusions back to Isaiah chapter 8. Why do I bring that up? Because in Isaiah chapter 8, the term Lord is being used as the personal name for God. So when it says to honor Christ as the Lord, it is saying to honor Christ as Jehovah or Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord. Peter, who walked with Christ, wants you to know that Christ is God. He's not something lesser. He is God in the flesh. And so we are called to honor and fear Jesus Christ as the Lord God in our hearts. That is how you make decisions, how you live, that Christ is to be enthroned in wherever you are making your decisions from. Just as Christ is enthroned in heaven, he is to be enthroned in your heart because he rules and reigns over everything. And we are to do so with a preparation ready to offer the reason for our hope. This is a key to our form of battle here, that when we suffer, we suffer with hope. We do it with assurity, saying that this is worth it. I'm willing to suffer for the sake of Christ because Christ is God in the flesh. And part of honoring Christ is valuing Him above everything else, knowing that Christ suffered for you and that He is worth it. This goes back to what I was, I was talking about with petty things like running and working out. Let me give you something a little less petty. I grew up uh, watching the movie Braveheart. It's kind of dating me, but I grew up watching the movie Braveheart. Braveheart, And there's a scene that's stuck with me my entire life. Many of you have seen it, know the scene. Uh, At the end, the main character, 
which is a very Hollywood version of William Wallace, back when they used to take their characters and make them more righteous, where now they make them less righteous. Why the stories aren't very good anymore. But William Wallace in the movie is a very different character than William Wallace in, in real life. But Wall- Wallace was arrested by the British for treason. His treasonous acts were fighting for the freedom of his own people, the Scottish, and they made a public display of him where they would publicly torture him in an effort to get him to recant. They literally start ripping his insides out in front of the crowd. And at first the whole crowd is, is yelling at him and mocking him, but then by the end they're all encouraging him to cry out for mercy. Just, just cry out for mercy so they'll end your life. And before all of this started, William Wallace Uh, told those who cared about him, I'm not going to do that. Because what I'm dying for is more important than the suffering that I'm going through. So as he is tortured and eventually executed, the crowd encourages him to recant and to cry out for mercy. But he refuses, and as the iconic scene goes, instead he cries out for freedom. And we like to romanticize freedom and be like, yeah, that's a good man. And yeah, that is a good man. But what about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that not worth more than freedom? Freedom is God's idea, to be sure. But there is something greater than political freedom that we are called to suffer for. Christ is greater. So be prepared to suffer for Christ and to do so with hope, being ready to answer the why. Why do you have such hope? Why are you unwilling to recant. Why are you unwilling when the woke mob comes for you to issue, or why are you unwilling to issue the non-apology apology that so many Christians do when they get in the hot water? Because it's worth it. Because there's something of greater importance than making the mob feel good about themselves and making it all go away. So the command here is to be ready to give that kind of a defense. It's a call for us to prepare, to study diligently. Why are we unwilling to compromise with the spirit of this age? You need to be ready to answer that question. In today's social media world, people who are just walking about their daily lives in no position of of public nature find themselves in this all the time. Like You need to be ready to explain why you would not compromise. For today, what gets us in the most trouble is the Christian sexual ethic. And to be ready and prepared means that you will need to spend some time thinking about it, researching it. What if that microphone comes to you? Are you ready? Now, to be clear, you don't need to be able to give a defense at the level of a pastor or a doctor in theology, but you do need to be ready to give some sort of a defense that explains why Christ is your hope and he is worth suffering for. And then, trust the Lord. Jesus says this about suffering for him. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Be prepared to give a defense, but when the time comes, trust God, and the Holy Spirit will speak through you. If you know me, you know I'm not, um, I'm not a very charismatic individual, but I wholeheartedly believe this. The Holy Spirit speaks through the suffering Christians at that time. Be ready. 
Why is this strategy so important? Why does Christ call us to suffer? Because persecution of the church ultimately backfires on the world. Look at verse 16 of 1 Peter 3. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When you suffer for righteousness' sake and you suffer in a right way, your enemies will be shamed. When you don't return evil for evil, they will be put to shame. This is God's winning strategy. It has worked in the past and it will work again. We are told that you will be, okay, we've got to get this around our heads here. We are told that you will be slandered by your opponents. So often what happens is a Christian does something, the media world, social media world explodes with all of these accusations against the people. And what drives me nuts is that a lot of Christians believe those accusations automatically and then start distancing themselves from the Christian. Like, why do you inherently trust those who hate Christ more than those who love Christ? Sometimes they're right, and you're like, yeah, this, this, this isn't the example we necessarily want to follow, but we need to check our hearts here. Slander is the standard effort. The early church was called all sorts of things. The early church was called cannibals. They were called cannibals because they ate the body and drank the blood of their Savior. We just did that. The unbelieving world looked at them and said, these guys are cannibals. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. The early church was called incestuous because they referred to everyone as their brothers and sisters, including their spouses. So they thought, these guys are all incestuous. Well, no, that's not what was going on either, but the world didn't understand them. The early church were called atheists. They were called atheists because they refused to worship the Roman gods and they refused to recognize Caesar as a god. So they were called atheists. And for that, they got executed. I've given you this example before, but uh, consider it again. Polycarp was an early bishop in the church. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he learned from the one who sat at the feet of Christ. He was the bishop in Smyrna. And there, there was persecution going on in the church where they were gathering up Christians and killing them. The crowd had already killed some of the Christians, but they wanted the head. They wanted Polycarp. They wanted the bishop. So the crowd that was gathered chanted for him. And the army went around to find him, and they did. And when they found him, they brought him before the ruler. And the ruler who looked at him, who was in his upper 80s at this time, in his old age, and he said, Hey, Polycarp, have some consideration for how old you are, and just say, Away with the atheists, the atheists being the Christians. So just renounce these atheists and you can go home. And Polycarp looked at his, uh, his persecutor, looked at the crowd and he pointed at them and he said, away with these atheists. Away with them. And for that, Polycarp was burned alive at the stake. And here's the point. Countless Christians gave up their lives under the persecution of Rome. How did that end up for Rome? The old Rome was converted, and within a couple hundred years, they were a Christian nation. As scary as that term may be today, they became a Christian nation, where Christianity was the state religion. 
Christians died because they refused to worship Caesar and they would worship Christ alone. And as one meme I saw last week put it well, Caesar is now a salad dressing, but Christ is still king. (laughs) How about those pantheon of Roman gods? Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, Ares. No one worships them anymore. They're now children's stories and cartoon figures. And today, billions of people around the world gather to worship Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. To put it plainly, the church won, Christ won, and he won through the faithful suffering of his people. Christ is right now smashing the nations with his rod of iron, and he laughs and mocks at their feeble attempts to prevent his gospel from going forward. And as much as the propaganda of our day tries to say, the church is finished, Christianity is finished, it's over, they're wrong. As we walk by faith, the Lord rewards us. So, we suffer for righteousness' sake. They continue on in evil, and people see the difference. But here's the key. Where the church has refused to stand firmly against the compromise of the age, the gospel dies in that area. Where the church values being liked more than it values the truth, the gospel dies. Christ comes in, Revelation letter to the seven churches and he takes the lampstand away only by being willing to suffer does the gospel go forward this leads us to the final verse of the passage verse 17 for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil so there's two types of suffering laid before us We can either suffer for doing what is good and receive a blessing, or we can suffer for what is evil. And then there's that hint of eternal judgment hanging over our head. Evil loses. Good wins. If you have to choose between the two, the choice is clear. Suffer for the good, and then you will be rewarded. And you identify yourself with your Savior and His prophets. But the encouragement here is this. This is God's will. If it be God's will, then trust His will. If you find yourself persecuted for the sake of righteousness, know that it is God who has put you in that position. It is not an accident. It is not a sign of failure. And it is not random. But rather, it is a part of God's perfect plan to advance the gospel in this age, in this world, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so you can be comforted that God rules over everything, including your suffering. Our enemies are not, and this should give you great comfort, our enemies are not even in control of how and when they persecute us. They're not. It's God's will. And in persecuting us, they sow the seeds of their own destruction. And so we should have courage and boldness, knowing that this has toppled kingdoms before, this has converted tribes and nations, and it will do so until Christ returns. That we overcome by the faithfulness of our testimony in the blood of the Lamb. This is God's plan. It is His battle strategy, and it has been working for thousands of years. I mean, if you read the stories of many of the missionaries who've been around the world, They weren't welcomed with open arms. 
They, they were persecuted. Many of them died. And then later the tribes were converted. But when we exchange humble repentance, walking in this way for acceptance from the world, we get nothing. When we prize comfort over difficult faithfulness, we get nothing. When we do these things, we are saying to the world that Christ is not really worth it. That our faith isn't worth suffering over. And so this is the conflict of our time. A war between the seed of the woman, Christ and his followers, and the seed of the serpent. And you are on one of those two sides. No neutral ground. And the ironic thing is, is that everyone at one point was on the wrong side. It's only by grace, through faith in Christ, that you can join the kingdom of light. We cannot shrink back from this. For Christ is worth every ounce of suffering that we face. And in so we work for his kingdom whose victory is assured. And we need to regain that type of boldness in wartime mentality. Here's a quote from, from a Christian from a couple generations ago. His name was Abraham Kuyper. He wrote this, When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day. Does that sound familiar? When principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must at any price of dearest peace lay your convictions bare before friend and enemy with all the fire of your faith. When evil seems to be winning the day, our call is to conflict, into battle. And we are called to make the reasons clear. Not to uh, explain them and caveat them into nothingness. But to make the contrast clear. And saying, this is worth it. This is good and right and true. And no matter what you do to us, we will follow Christ. Battle is the calling of our time. And to avoid it is unfaithfulness. To value peace over faithfulness is sin. This is God's plan. And so my call to you, Christ Bible Church, is wherever you go, be faithful unto the end. And you will be blessed. Christ is worth it. And his kingdom is coming. And you have earned for yourself in such faithfulness a blessing beyond anything you can imagine in this world. All of this we find in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent your Son to suffer on our behalf. And that in that you have given us an example to follow and a sure hope that Christ has overcome death sin, and the evil one at his resurrection. And now we but wait for the time where the fullness of your kingdom comes. Lord, we ask that you would hasten that day. But until that day comes, may you strengthen us, stiffen our spines, that we may stand faithful, not shrinking back from any challenge that we might face. Lord, we can only do this by grace through faith. So empower us by your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.